Once again, to yet another episode of Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast, I'm slightly more excited than normal because... Is that my... why you did the Street Fighter sound effects at the start there? Yeah, I was pretending to be my uh, guru, E. Honda, or Edward Honda, as his friends call him. Um, I am Roscoe Harold Vacant, and I'm joined once again by my dear friend and most bodacious colleagues, Mr. Gil Jacoby Rokotansky. Gil, how the are you, my friend? I'm pretty good. I'm, good. Uh... Just sailing off into the night garden. Awesome. And um, as I say, very excited to say that um, we're once again, for the third time running, um, we are joined by the writer, director, actor, apparently, um, <laughs> <laughs> professional, professional wrestler um, and a professional uh, duck pout poser. Um, <laughs> Roddy Frame impersonator. Roddy Freeman impersonator, the Jason Figgis. Jason, welcome once again to Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure as always. We had to have you on because it's so near to Christmas. True. It's We should call this episode Figgis Pudding. Oh, lovely. We all love Figgis Pudding. <laughs> yeah, we all love Figgis Pudding. And we've we missed last year, or else it would be an annual event because we've we've basically spoken to you December two thousand and thirteen, January two thousand and fourteen, and now uh, in December of two thousand and sixteen. So it's it's last year Jason needed a break. I think he did. I think well, actually, did. No, funnily enough, I think I was just in post production all the time, so there would have been nothing to talk about other than. How's the edit coming along? You know, so, so I think that's probably why there was a lot of post production going on because we had you know the two films almost running neck and neck, trying to get them completed. So uh, yeah, it was a kind of a, a strange time last year. There's a lot of post production round about Christmas. Yes, I think there is. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was the two. Yeah. The two films that you're referring to there are Don't You Recognize Me and Urban Traffic. Correct. So those films, I believe, have just gone into distribution, Jason, is that right? Or Yeah, well, Urban Traffic is set to be distributed in spring next year. And Don't You Recognize Me is already, it's had a couple of offers, but we're kind of weighing up what way we're going to distribute that. Because um, it's been doing very well with us in terms of you know, critical acclaim and it's been winning awards and, and nominated for other awards and kind of industry boost things in the States and that. So we're just kind of weighing up our options on that and seeing what would be the best route. Um, whereas urban traffic, we're just going to go with the, with the offer that is there already set. So, you know, it's nice to know that that's coming out in the spring and then we have a few different options, but don't you recognize me? So That's really awesome. So what, what are the... What were the prizes? What were the all the nominations? Well, for um, for Don't You Recognize Me, we well, we were nominated for two awards at the Starburst Fantasy Awards in Manchester. Oh wow! 
Servers magazine, and um, we we did it. Funnily enough, when we went to the to the festival, we didn't even know that we were nominated in the category, which ended up winning. <laughs> Which was which is really funny because I went along with the lead actor Darren Travers who plays the twins, uh, uh, and uh, you know he's nothing like his character in the film. He's the sweetest you know guy who sit there and apologise for everything. You know, uh, you know. You always in- get him to play bad guys. Well, yeah, because it, but that's the funny thing about Darren. Darren just has this great ability to play bad guys. Even though in life he's the sweetest guy you could meet, I'm saying literally apologetic about everything. Good morning. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good morning yourself. Um, and but when he gets his kind of his you know his teeth into excuse the pun and the, the vampire connection there with the man uh, into a role, he um, he just I mean he'll present me with a hundred pages of research. So you always know that if he's decided this way, this is the way the character's going to go then you know that he has spent a lot of time figuring that out. And but don't you recognize me? Um, he, I mean, he, he went to some of the most dangerous parts of Dublin at night, just kind of hung around in bars and ended up going out. I'd spent a couple of months going out with some of the other characters or the actors who were playing characters in the movie and just hung out with them in the toughest areas of Dublin just to really get a sense of, you know, what that life would be like. Did and, that uh, ever backfire? No, it never backfired, except for one very interesting little story. Um, um, and I'll get back to the awards again, but this this, this is quite funny. It all leads up. <laughs> we expect the tangents. Of course. We begin with a tangent and we'll end with tangents, no doubt. <laughs> but um, this is very funny, actually. When he was playing the, um, the <laughs> I never know what the correct terminology is, um, intellectually challenged. Yeah. <laughs> When he's playing the intellectually challenged brother, um, he was deep in character playing that role. And we had to, the idea was that, you know, the, the kind of film within a film aspect of it that's projected. Um, mm-hmm. we, I went around with that actor and filmed him as if he was looking for somebody to film. So they were already set up in the location, which was down by the river somewhere in the, in the city. I think it was in the financial district. And he was sitting sitting on the edge of the, uh, the the little river there, and playing with toy cars. And the girl, Shauna Ryan, who, who I think is fantastic in the film, um, she was meant to be looking out for him, but she had to kind of run off for a minute to go to a shop or something. And when she came back, there were two police officers there with Darren, and Darren refused to come out of character. <laughs> so they actually they were like is there anyone looking after you son are you all right and he's like i'm fine i'm fine and kept playing with his cars and then when the actress came back she she was kind of saying oh i'm looking after him officers it's all right and they were saying no don't let him get too close to the water <laughs> <laughs> and this you know big six foot two inch guy um and he and he refused to look up and he kept playing with the cars and they were saying you know you know shouldn't leave him on his own and all that and they wandered off on their way and then shortly after, we arrived to film the scene. So everything, in order to make it believable, it had to be as though we stumbled across them very much so in, in a really kind of awkward fashion. So, um, but that's Darren. You know, he just will not come out of character. Um, he terrified the kids and Isabel Mann because they actually thought he was an Eastern European vampire because, <laughs> because he would just stand there staring. And if they approached him, he'd talk in a guttural Eastern European accent. So they had no idea what to make of them, you know. 
I think you missed a uh, trick by not getting Kevin Eldon to play one of the twins alongside him. Oh, yeah. I always think there's a wee similarity between Darren and the actor Kevin Eldon. Yeah, I never thought of that, actually. It's funny (laughs) when you're so... When you're so... um, you're so engaged with certain actors uh, and you're you're just kind of delving into roles with them. I don't think you notice anything externally. You're just kind of sucked into their world of what they're trying to achieve. But the tangent has moved back to your original question. So Darren came with me to Manchester. We had an amazing time. Um, got to meet John Glenn and hang out with him. You know, the great James Bond director and had great chats with him. Met Carolyn Monroe and various other Bond girls, uh, you know, from the 70s and that. And, and uh, you know, it was a really great, great weekend. And then when it came to the awards, we knew that we knew the film was uh, in the nominations for Best Director and Best Film. And I just thought, to be, to be honest, there were some really big budget films there, you know, that were really kind of grandstanded in the festival. And I said, you know, we're not going to win Best Film because of some, you know, some kind of major efforts here, you know, so it would look a bit odd. But um, I was convinced, I said, you know, it's a shame that Darren wasn't nominated for Best Performance because he's he's amazing in it. And the very first award comes up and Best Performance, Darren Travers. And don't you reckon we were like, what? So that was, <laughs> that was fantastic. He didn't, he didn't know what to do with himself. He had to go up and make an acceptance speech that he had never even considered because we were just going to enjoy the awards and go, well, it'll be a nice, it'll be a nice night for the last night in Manchester. But yeah, he won the award and that was amazing. And then Starburst decided to make me uh, the featured independent director of the month. in in, uh, I think it was number 427, magazine 427 of Starburst, uh, the one with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch on the, on the covers, um, as uh, Doctor Strange, you know, so that was great. And personally, I had grown up loving Starburst, so I, I literally have from issue one of Starburst in the late seventies. So oh. to uh, I, but the thing is, I even remember as a kid looking at it, going, "Oh, imagine making movies and being in this magazine." <laughs> to then being the featured independent director on a six-page spread in the magazine, which was kind of unbelievable, you know. That so very on awesome. a personal note, it was really nice. And they gave a great review as well to Don't You Recognize Me. So that kind of got the ball rolling. They invited us to submit to the festival um, and it got accepted, you know, and it, everything kind of went from there. So then after that, um, another um, festival, an IndieWise festival over in Miami, they put it forward. It became a finalist in a thing called the Industry Boost Competition where they you know, they really get behind the movie. It didn't win, but we were finalist, which was fantastic. So it all helps with distribution offers, you know. Yeah. The more, you know, the more laurels you have, the more great review quotes, the more, you know, nominations, wins or or whatever. It's officially now an award-winning film, which is great. <coughs> so, um, yeah, that was, that, that's been an exciting kind of turn of events for that film, which we shot in three days. I think I mentioned that too. Do you think... Um... Jason, I know obviously we've we've, we've talked about uh, Don't You Recognise Me actually in quite a lot of depth in the previous uh, discussion, but obviously that's a couple of years ago now. <laughs> um, but I wondered if you would be able to give us a kind of synopsis from your perspective of Don't You Recognise Me and what you were trying to achieve. Certainly, yeah. Well, the idea was that we wanted to... I wanted to create a, a revenge film that kind of um, upended expectations where people think that the bad guys are 
you know, the standard stereotype bad guys. And then you realize a little bit later on that these very scary bad guys are actually the victims. So that to me was the, the kind of conceit. It was the interesting idea to do something different and also to try and make a found footage film within that idea. Um, you know, because again, it kind of makes it scarier if you think, well, this is, you know, footage shot by these different, um, you know, filmmaking teams. And you're kind of like, you know, whose shot belongs to who and look what they're capturing. And it's all, you know, it's getting, you know, it's going in a direction that, that is very intimidating, but you don't really know where it's going until, it, you know, until it gets there, essentially. Um, but, and that's all, you know, that was all part of the process of making the film, and that was fine. And, and some of it turned out, some of it kind of went in a direction on its own, because, I mean, as you, you made some funny little asides there about the fact that I'm in it, acting in it, how that came about was... Um, I, I was trying to figure out how am I going to direct this film if it's meant to be two documentary crews. I can't be anywhere in the shots. So, so it was actually Darren said, "Why don't you play the you know the the big brother in every sense of the word, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, and you can wear a mask, and then you can make sure everything is going the way it's meant to go." And it worked out perfectly because it's quite funny um, because. There is a lot of editing involved in the film, and thankfully, shot with two cameras, you can get away with that. Because I would go, I would stop, and I would say, you know, wearing the mask and, and carrying the, the hammer, and I would say, guys, you know, it's not quite going. That now, remember, you need to remember this particular point, and you need to move it on to that. You can whatever way you want to get there is fine, but you need to get from A to B within this period of time and give us this information or it's not going to work. It'll just be a, a cluster. Um, so it was actually quite funny. Uh, some of the outtakes, you know, of me directing them and then going back to being Nikki Babyface Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, essentially to me, it's about a filmmaker um, setting out to make a day in the life uh, documentary film. He gets approached by a, um, a would be kind of inner city gangster, a young guy who's kind of taken over a turf. And, uh, you know, the idea that he doesn't look very threatening, he's just a young guy, probably more more about, you know, this is my idea of what I want to, want to become other than who I really am. So it starts off, you know, a little, a little bit gently, and then we realize that nothing is as it seemed. Um, and... Uh, a lot of people are quite shocked by the turn of events, and they go, "What? Didn't see that one coming." So it happens pretty much on the, like a third of the way into the film, exactly right. as well. Which yeah. is a thing that I noticed about both of these films actually is that they also, I don't know if it was intentional, but directly in the middle of each film, something that I noticed happened in each of them, and then don't you recognise me? It was that the kind of disjointed music from the very beginning comes back in again. And well, that, it is yeah. within about, it's it's within like a 10 second space of being directly in the centre of the film. Well, I didn't actually realise about the, I mean, it could be that I, because I edit all of the films that we make as well. So I don't know whether it's a conscious or subconscious thing that I want to kind of shift the tone at a certain moment. Um, but also, I mean, you know, we have a really great um, composer and Michael Richard Plowman has been doing everything so far. And I think he knows as well the way I like to work and move things. So he senses that shift 
mm-hmm. in tone and then you know it very organically starts to kind of play with that um, so I've always been pleased you know it's funny I've never had to give him one note on the score for any of the films he's come back with the score I would, he doesn't like to score as we go along I give him the entire movie he watches it four or five times and then he starts writing music he sends it back to me I'm like excellent thanks that's it never have any notes for the guy he always just just gets it I think the most I think there were a couple of times maybe I dropped the uh, the level of his score sometimes in the final mix, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is great. It's great knowing that you have somebody who understands what you're trying to do so well that you can just hand them something and they'll do it and come back to you. And he always says that scoring my films is like a holiday for him because he works with a lot of really demanding producers who every note and every, you know, decibel is argued over and, and, you know, by committee usually. So he ends up really stressed out working on Hollywood films. So he, he comes to me for a little holiday to score <laughs> one time, which is nice, you know. I'm glad that I can contribute to his mental health, you know. <laughs> and on the, on the audio for the actual documentary footage, yes. was it a conscious effort? to cut between the the audio of whatever camera is showing the action at the time rather than to just sync all of the... Because you've got a boom mic yeah. right in the middle of everything all the time, so it would probably be pretty yeah. easy to get like a really clean sound for everything. But then yeah. sometimes for the more rogue, like a videographer, Z... I think it yeah, was correct, that yeah. uses the just the the camera mic for that. Was that a conscious decision? That was a conscious decision because what what we thought was the the camera of the professional crew is radio mic'd and synced up to the camera, but we thought <laughs> the other guys don't really know what they're doing. They've got a camera and they're doing it, so they're using the onboard mic. So I thought that's what I want to do. I really want to just shift the edit between the really good sound and the not so good sound, you know, because that's how it really would have been done with people who had different cameras and different levels of ability. But it's funny because I thought a lot of Z's footage was great and that it's quite erratic, but she, she got everything that you really needed to capture. Um, And then as, uh, as Alan Rogers, who was playing um, uh, the character of Jamie, the the cinematographer slash director of the piece, um, you know, he was gradually getting worse with his shots because he was kind of getting panicky. And you can see there's a big chunk where he just holds the camera down at his side. And so Z has to take over and kind of, and and film everything. Yeah. Um, So, you know, played by a filmmaker as well. So yeah, that's uh, Zoe Kavanagh who directed, um, Taron Barker, Demon Hunter, um, uh, which is doing really well at the festivals as well. So it's kind of mad. We're always comparing notes over, oh, you got in here and you're in Fright Night as well, and we're doing this and we're <laughs> doing that. And, and it's great, you know. She thought it was one of the most meta films ever made. She said, like, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker and I'm filming a film and there's a film within the film that we're filming. This is so meta, man. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was another fun aspect of it. But, it, you know, I did feel Emma Dunlop, who played the sound girl, I think was deeply traumatized by the whole thing because when she saw me, she hadn't seen me dressed up as babyface and knew nothing about that next section of the film. Mm-hmm. So when she saw me, she burst into tears 
and I kind of, you know, because it was very intense. We were filming for all of that stuff in the warehouse. We shot it all in a continuous um, uh, day of, I think we started off maybe three o'clock in the day and finished at three the following morning with no breaks. So, you know, nobody had anything. They were getting more and more freaked out. You know, how is this going to, is this a bloody snuff movie or something? <laughs> you know? She was getting really worried because at the end when I called, that's a wrap, and I pulled off the mask, she ran over and threw her arms around me and gave me a hug. And she said that was utterly terrifying. And me being a little sadistic and making the film, I'd make a point of walking over to her and kind of standing close to her and looking down at her, you know, because I wanted her to keep that level of of fear because it really helped every time the camera was on her she looked utterly confused why am i here how did i get involved in this so um you know she forgave me <laughs> so you know so that's that worked out but um yeah i mean it was very intense like alan rogers i think i mentioned that he um after we filmed he went home and updated his facebook status with just one word traumatized uh, <laughs> And came to the premiere and messaged me immediately. Said it's fucking mental. I <laughs> think <laughs> general consensus of people everywhere. People are going that film is fucking mental, and uh, and I thought, yeah, well, it it has to be mental. You know, it's it's the only way it could play. Yeah, um, it's mental but, for two thirds of it as well. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't let up, and I think that's that's where she was quite handy because she was like my kind of emotional anchor point for it. Because yeah. when you see her reactions, you're, you just, you end up, you watch her expressions. You, you stop watching what's going on round about her because she genuinely looks very freaked out. Yeah, and I think there's a thing about having women uh, in films, especially women who don't, you know, they're not like um, Mila Jovovich or something, you know, where they're kick-ass warriors. If you have a woman in a film who looks vulnerable, I think it makes, you know, the film-going experience even more kind of disturbing because you're really, you're worried about them. Innately, you're worried about this young woman who looks vulnerable. Is she going to be okay? They're not going to turn their attention to her, so to speak, which is something I hate in film anyway. I hate when women are, you know, put in a movie to be either a sex object or a woman to be brutalized. I absolutely despise that in films and I have no interest in it at all. So actually, because a lot of actors will say, you're always writing roles for women, you know, strong roles. Like even even Children of a Darker Dawn, you know, it's it's two young teenage girls, but they're strong characters. In Isabel Mann, you know, she's trouble, but she's a strong female character. Um, and also, you know, in Urban Traffic, Claire Blenner Hassett's character is strong and, and you know, take, takes a different route to, I think, expected by a lot of people as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so so women, women as vulnerable objects to terrorize just doesn't really interest me at all. I prefer to turn the tables, and that's why with Don't You Recognize Me, I love the idea of having this band of dangerous-looking people uh, ultimately being the victims, at least psychologically. Um, you know, so that was, I thought that was an interesting way of doing it because ideally or normally I wouldn't want to do a fan footage film, you know, because they tend to be the same kind of thing. So I thought if I'm going to do a film like that, I want to make it different. I want, I want to overturn, you know, and undermine expectations. Yeah. So... Uh, 
you know, that was it was fun. Is there a lot of kind of unspoken backstory to the film? Because right at the start of the film, without any attention being brought to it at all, you're yeah. you're away at the back in the distance, just hanging about and then making a phone call. Oh wait, you're the only you're the only person to ever notice that. Roscoe noticed you as well. Really? I think it's you... I think it's the Roddy Frame thing where I was like, Fucking hell, he's got Roddy Frame in his film. <laughs> oh yeah, no, lar- that's Jason. A much larger version. Yeah. <laughs> But no, but that's really weird. That I mean, no one has noticed that. And of course, I deliberately did that. I said, look, I'm going to be over here making a call. So, because I wanted people to kind of go, if they really pay attention and they see as the rolling credits come up that my name appears very early on, they go, what are they talking about? Babyface is like the last person you see. And you're like, you're no. You're in the, in the list. Yeah, exactly. So people kind of well, what do you mean? Uh, no, he's the guy there in the in the check shirt on the phone in the background, and you um, keep ducking behind the other guy's head as well, so that you're yeah, not well, always there. But actually, funnily enough, that was that was total um, uh, serendipity, I think, or or else Alan was going. You know, the way I filmed this, Jay will kind of appear in and out. So that's a decision that Alan made himself, which worked out really well. You know, that uh, that I'm not made a point of. I just happened to be there. Yeah. Um, so, so that, I mean, that was fun. That, that was a lot of fun to do. And, and, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you say kind of unspoken or kind of ideas behind it. I mean, all the time I was thinking that it, that it's a film about grief. And I think that anyone, no matter where they, where they are in life or, you know, or no matter how tough they think they are, you know, running with gangs or drug dealers or whatever, that there, there is something, you know, if, if there, there was a loss of somebody in, in your family that you really cared about, that, that really chips away at that kind of resolve of being a tough guy. So that's really what the background was for me, that I wanted to, I wanted to make a film about emotion that becomes really heightened because a lot of the people involved in the film, the characters, they're not able to um, articulate those kind of feelings other than through violence or getting answers in brutal ways if that's the way they have to do it mm-hmm. so that's what really was behind it for me you know like how do they articulate their grief uh, especially when put in the room with the person who's responsible for that grief um so yeah that was that was really the focus for me in making the film is there any importance in the date that it happens on because it's the day after halloween is there, is there, I, you know, not really. I mean, I like, um, I like having the number 11 and things. Um, well, that's so, the name of your production company yeah, exactly. as well. But it's not even that. It's, it's an interesting number 11. It comes up a lot, you know, uh, you know, when trying to get things done and the number 11 will appear and then you go, oh, this, this thing is going to work out. And, and it's very oddly, it's very synchronous with the number 11. So I try and put that in there where I can, because we actually shot it during the summer. So uh, because we really wanted to take advantage of as much daylight that we could get just in case we needed to do reshoots. And we really wanted to make the film, you know, in the three days. Now, when I say we shot it in three days, the first shoot, which was Darren playing the um, intellectually challenged brother, was shot, um, say, eight months before the other two days because Darren wanted to be completely different as that brother. And we yeah. also 
crisis. We also wanted this sense of real time has passed so that when we did get to the other two days, which were shot, uh, you know, I think on a Saturday and a Sunday following each other, um, we wanted uh, to be like, yeah, eight months have actually passed in the lives of these characters who are dealing with this grief. So um, they, they, they literally in real time had been had that in their mind for all those months when we came to shoot this. And so, I mean, that was interesting, you know, in itself. And it was something that Darren said that he'd really like to have in it if possible. And we were, we were, we were already filming um, urban traffic in the meantime. So it meant that, you know, I, I was busy anyway, had a lot to do. And, and uh, Darren had other things to do because um, he was involved a lot as well in preparations for the, um, the centenary of uh, the 1916 Rising. So uh, because he, he ended up playing a character, not a character, I mean, they're real life people, but um, he ended up playing two of the of the uh, the major kind of movers during the 16 Rising and is now forevermore uh, one of the characters at our at our general post office in Dublin City on this huge display in the history section. So, uh, yeah, so that was something that he was prepping for as well. So those eight months really kind of helped. Mm-hmm. Uh, focused on other things as well before he came back to play the other you know the, the other twin so yeah i was i was curious jason what was the casting process like for this obviously members of your crew are involved in it and people who you've collaborated with in the past um and can follow-up question how did your crew react to becoming the cast um if that's, I know that uh, is. It, I'm assuming that Alan is angry. Uh, is not angry, Alan, but the the <laughs> Alan who uh, you've previously mentioned is being calmed down by being uh, being called angry, Alan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the funny thing is, um, Alan has done a lot of acting courses anyway. He was kind of, in a way, a frustrated actor. He wanted to do a bit of that, but he's a good cinematographer, and that's what you know gets him through the week being a cinematographer. So. When I told him, I said, look, the only way to make this work is if you actually play the part of the director slash cameraman. Um, and all we're going to do is change your name to Jamie. But the rest is really Alan. So you can you can tell Matt what you what you need from him in terms of, um, you know, in terms of what the shot is going to be or the setup is going to be, which, of course, we discussed in detail beforehand. Otherwise, it would have been like, you know, none of us would have been on the same page. So, so that was all really important. But Emma, who plays the sound girl, is an actress. She's not a sound girl at all. So Alan actually had to train her how to be a sound person. Ah, yeah. So, so how did your cast react to becoming the crew then? Well, exactly. Um, well, you know, with with her, she just said, "Well, I'm playing a role. I'm playing the role of the sound girl." Awesome. But but it but it means that I actually have to know how to record the sound. So, um, you know, Alan set everything up really well anyway. So the really what she needed to do was, you know, listen to the level of the audio and make sure the boom was in the, in the right position, you know. Um, so and then the rest of it, she could just concentrate on her performance. So, you know, I mean, it was even, you know, I, I did a lot of acting years ago. I, I was with a um, I was with a Shakespeare company called the Illyria Theatre Company. And we used to tour around schools and colleges performing you know, things from Shakespeare. I played a lot of the main Shakespearean characters, you know, so that was, so getting back to that and doing, you know, playing a role was fun to do. And especially the fact that I got to wear a mask so I could really, you know, kind of hide behind that and, and really kind of give it, give it, 
kind of my all in playing this very kind of stilted, you know, character who clearly is, you know, the kind of the muscle of the brothers who will just do what he's told and inflict whatever is required of him without really thinking it through. Um, actually, it was funny because the, the moment where where they they asked my character if I believed what Matt Thomas' character was saying, and I said yes, that Jason Sherlock, uh, who played the younger brother, actually burst into tears for real because he said it really hit him hard that he just wasn't expecting me to go, yes, I believe. You know, I'd, like my character didn't want to inflict any more violence. Yes, I believe him. You know, we can we can wrap this up now, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Jason, so the, Jason Sherlock was, who did he K. portray? He was yeah, K. K, mm. yeah. You know, and 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 it's, there was a lot of spontaneous tears shooting that, shooting that film, especially in that last day. Um, I think everything just got really heightened. Like, you know, any tears you see from Darren are utterly real. Anything from Jason Sherlock and also Sean Orion, you know, who played Therese Dolores Daly, the hairdresser. Sh- I thought both K, uh, Jason Sherlock and Sean Ryan um, were absolutely phenomenal, uh, and and their roles, and particularly Shona just looked like uh, I An don't insane know. bodybuilder. I, I have no idea what Shona. Yeah. I've no idea what Shona was um, drawn on, but it was really, really powerful stuff. Just the way that she was spewing that very righteous anger. Um, Towards uh, towards the director, I just thought it was so good. And Kay Gallagher, if honestly, honestly, if I hadn't been sent this um, for the first maybe first third of the movie, if I didn't know anything about it, I would genuinely think it was documentary, because there was nothing to tell you that it, nothing to tell you otherwise. Pixelated the the yeah, the, the, whole, the, the whole the whole thing of um, so the the crew arrives on the estate. Um, we're given a kind of talking head with the director telling us, um, you know, that this is what he's planning to do. That he's been contacted by Kay Gallagher. He's going to go up and meet him at his flat. Oh, it looks a bit of a dodgy area. We'll just see how it goes. Um, that whole segment was just so well done. It just felt, um, and obviously the kids going about being pixelated, and then the the woman in the flat who objects to being uh, filmed, so she's pixelated out. Nothing, yeah. on, nothing on it at all. Signposted that this was anything other than a, a documentary film that was completely on the square. Um, so I, I just really wanted to commend you on, on particularly the first third because it was. It's so great, so well done, um, and I mean the 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 rest of it's absolutely great. A really great fun film, but just the first third where, what was that? I've never heard of golf fun. I yes. said, well, it's <laughs> really well. I was it left me guessing all the way through, and I certainly didn't expect. Um, I really didn't expect what what came you know what came to pass. Well, actually, it's funny, right? Because when it was screened at uh, at Manchester. And we had some really interesting reactions. One guy who kind of looked a bit like Woody Allen for, for like an hour afterwards was bending Darren's ear about, God, how did you do this? And you did that. And like, I can totally believe this. And I believe that. And during the screening, another uh, a woman stood up and vocally said, I'm sorry, I can't handle this and walked out. <laughs> and, which was a great reaction, of course. You know? uh, and also, um, how yeah, much did you pay her? Yeah, exactly. You'd think that, wouldn't you? Like at Sundance or Cannes when people... Did she do like the, the kind of bodybuilder pose like Shauna? 
Yeah. I can't handle yeah. this. And then yeah. just straight like a big muscle man pose or muscle lady. That's a lady pose. Well, actually, but one of the lead writers from Starburst afterwards came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, Jesus, man, that was seriously intense. I mean, really intense. And he said, and I never want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw it. Take that as a compliment, John. Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, so we got a lot of reactions like that, you know, where people going, what the fuck were you thinking? There's a lot of darkly comic moments throughout the whole thing. Yeah. And I mean, the... the yeah. Particularly Darren Travers, um, the really intense sequences where he's he's holding the director's hands, where yeah. he's you know cuddling the director, um, and you know just really really uh, really fun and funny and um, I, it's, it's very engaging. I felt and um, but yeah, definitely it's it's, a, it's an intense an intense watch, no doubt about it. But I think there were so many light moments like Shauna. Uh, doing a thing, be yeah. the, the 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 really intense sequences where people are being forced to strike funny poses to, uh, with a gun pointed at their head. Um, <laughs> the family portrait. Yeah, family portrait. Um, yeah, it's, I, I I thought it was a, it was very engaging. Did you notice my little homage to Texas Chainsaw when I made her take the uh, I made her take the hammer? Poor little Emma. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, there was. Uh, I was going to ask you about the mask. Was that a reference to Pink Floyd's The Wall? Well, funny. I mean, I'm mean, I'm a huge fan of Pink Floyd and the Who and a lot of amazing bands of, of that era. So, one of the most disturbing images I think I've ever seen are are images uh, from all of the visual work of Pink Floyd. Um, so definitely, it's funny. Well, again, you're very, very perceptive that um, it, it's a mixture of that and, you know, just the, the idea of how creepy kind of baby masks can be. And so I, I've been looking up a lot of stuff online. And then, you know, even, of course, I changed the mask. I made the, the mouthpiece bigger and, and kind of scrunched it up and, you know, put holes on the side. And even even by tying it to the back of my head, I kind of changed the kind of expression even on the face of the mask so there were a lot of things that kind of inspired that look but i also thought you know there's also that kind of twisted innocence you know that you know hiding behind you know a baby face you know but then kind of perpetrating you know this stuff on behalf of the family and to exact some kind of retribution um and now you're the first cinematic jason in a mask yeah, that's true, like literally. <laughs> for real, for real, yeah, for real. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was some, it's funny in the editing process, now that, that was very interesting because a lot of the time I'll edit on my own. But this time I thought, you know what, this is one film that I really need to be bouncing off somebody for the entire thing. So Darren uh, decided, that he would sit in uh, on the edit with me. So I literally didn't edit anything without Darren being around. And so it was great. I mean, we the first cut of the film was two hours, 20 minutes. And that two hours, 20 minutes worked. And that was really freaky. We were like going, oh my God, we've got to literally trim this down to, you know, a watchable 90 minutes. Because, you know yourself, independent horror movie, you really don't want to outstay your welcome. And, you know, I mean, it's like we all know Children of a Dark Dawn could have been 20 minutes, you know, lighter than it was. A lot of those conversations could have been cut down. But that was the first of those kind of films I made. So I learned a lot on that, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. going forward. 
but with um with Darren it was great literally bands go this works what do you think oh yeah and when whenever we made a decision that we both both agreed that was the right way to go we knew great because there were a lot of amazing little moments with Darren um, in the lead up when they're watching the film and he's forcing Matt Thomas' character to watch the film there were amazing you know comedic moments but he was hitting his kind of anger peak way too early so we had to you know make an executive decision and go well it's great but it doesn't work in terms of how this film is meant to progress so he's peaking in his anger way too early well, then where does it go from there? It's peaks and troughs all the time. We want him to be friendly, but in that creepy kind of, is that real friendliness? Is that disingenuous? You know, is there something really dark behind the way he's behaving? With him being over familiar with somebody he just doesn't know at all and trying to get them involved and watching this film and all excited about, you know, getting, you know, a, a master filmmaker's opinion, you know, and, um, you know, and even how Matt's character... Um, responded to that you know i don't really know that much you know you know you know you could see the nervous that he didn't really want to sit down and engage with these people at all he just wanted to make this film with this the safer looking character um of the brother k and you know and then just get their film and get out of there you know needless to say it would be a, any filmmaker's worst nightmare i think would be caught up in something real that they realize there's no way out of unless they're literally given permission to leave yeah. As we as we see gradually, this you know, no permission slips being given. Yeah, and the 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 film within the film is really annoying at the moment because yeah. there's so many questions that we could be asking you about the film within the film, but if we yeah. ask you anything about the film within the film, like there's there's one big question about the film within the film that yeah. we can't ask you. <laughs> You can ask me and then cut it out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll ask you later on so that then I don't yeah. have to edit anything. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I know, listen, it's been amazing that reviewers have been very wary about any kind of um, spoiler. You know, that they're really like, oh, no, we, you know, as much as we'd like to tell you about this, we can't because you need to discover this for yourself as you watch the film. I mean, let's face it, a lot of, a lot of critics could go, no, oh, I'm going to do it anyway because I'm writing a critique and it's my right to do that. But they've been very respectful of the, you know, the process of presenting a film in a certain way and allowing people to discover things for themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hands up, or, you know, like... A fist pump to all those reviewers who are, you know, have that respect for the work that people do because, you know, especially, you know, reviewers know that making a film, whether it's good or bad, takes a hell of a lot of work. And uh, people don't set out to make a bad film unless it's a, you know, a parody. uh, And then they're deliberately making it as bad as it can be, which essentially becomes that that odd thing of, you know, so bad it was good. Um, But I think that's usually unintentional. (laughs) These days, reviewers are more respectful of avoiding spoilers than the people that edit the trailers. Oh, that's true, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether you've seen the trailer for this. Have you? I have, yeah, I have. Yeah. I haven't. So we wanted to confuse people with it. Like, oh, yeah, something going on there. Oh, God, now that's overlapping. And you really, you could watch the trailer over and over and just make a decision as to which screens you're going to look at and try and pick up what's happening. And that's why for the very last shot, I really wanted that just, you know, for every screen. To go the same. Yeah, with one violent. And you're like, oh, Jesus. Okay, something bad is happening. You know, and then uh, and then just go to the name of the film and kind of 
And I love that sound, you know, that, that sound of like a stylus on a record just kind of skipping over and over. And that. it's one yeah. of my favorite sounds when you drop the stylus onto that, onto that vinyl and you just hear that crackle, you know, before it kicks into the song. So it's uh, any excuse to get that in there, you know, is, uh, is nice. I suppose, Jason, a, a kind of general question that touch perhaps touches on um, what the question Gil was maybe wanting to ask Um what would you say? The, would you say the film comments on the role of the director, on all the role of the researcher, um, and would you say there's a class element to that as well? Well, I think there is. Um, there are going back to the whole idea of the stereotype that people think, um, you know, that because somebody is from a certain area of town or for you know a certain socio-economic background that they're not as worthy as other people. And to me, that's utter bullshit. I mean, I've got friends from, you know, from literally every walk of life, and they're, they're all as valid to me in their friendship, you know, irregardless of where they're from or where they were brought up or whether they went to private school or whatever. Um, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in people for the people that they are and not where they've come from or what opportunities they've had or not had. So I do like the idea of, um, you know, presenting an idea to people and going, wait a minute, like, yes, stereotypes exist, and that's why they're, they're included in film ideas or narratives and that. But then there's also the other side of the coin where, you know, um, what you're expecting isn't there. And that whole thing of, you know, not judging the book by its cover. People do that. They do it all the time. They see a homeless person on the street and they just... They just have this idea, this little narrative running in their mind of what a homeless person is. And it's probably, oh, drug addicts, they got into drugs and they lost their way in life. And now, you know, but, you know, a lot of it is people, you know, have really bad home lives and they know nowhere to go. And they had to leave their home and ended up on the streets. And, you know, some of them get to change their lives. Some of them freeze to death in the snow. I mean, we've had quite a few. No, well, not quite a few, but several incidents in Ireland where, you know, people have just frozen to death in doorways, you know, and mm. they're the forgotten people until that happens. And then suddenly all these things have to change, you know, we have to change it. But they, they don't. What do they really change? Nothing. There's more homeless people in Ireland than there ever has been. Um, you know, the Celtic Tiger exploding and all these people, you know, losing their homes because of the ridiculous mortgages that they had to pay in order to get a house in the first place. And, um, you know, a problem that doesn't exist in the like of Germany or places like that where people aren't so caught up in the idea of owning their own home. They're more into renting a property and then go, oh, we're, we've got another job. We're moving cities. So we'll just give up our lease and we'll rent somewhere else. So I think Ireland in particular had this idea of you want to own your own property. And a lot of people actually say that it goes back to the famine where, you know, people you know, not only do they not have the security of where they lived, but, you know, if if their business failed, you know, they starved to death, were thrown out on the road to end up in the workhouse. So a lot of people think it's almost in the DNA of the Irish to want your own bit of land, you know, that's yours, that you've paid for and it's yours. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so, I mean, I don't know whether I've tangentialised there, but... Uh, no, I, I was just thinking that one of the worst things that came out of all that was... Things like film directors were then able to go into these really expensive houses that had been <laughs> <laughs> abandoned when the mortgage defaulted, and 
<laughs> yeah, they could they could make independent movies in places where I mean they really shouldn't have been able to afford. <laughs> and there was no furniture in the mind. No, no furniture, but there wasn't any furniture because in the script, the fun people had thought maybe that's how this thing is spreading. So people had burnt their furniture like people did during the plague. Exactly. <laughs> and that that leads that? that leads the gentleman is of course a callback uh, to <laughs> their very Pixies. first. Yeah. Previous movie, uh, Children of the Darker Dawn. Jason, I wondered if you could maybe give us a wee update on uh, how Children of the Darker Dawn has done, how Ecstasy of Isabel Man has done, um, and just general kind of reflections. I know you kind of said before um, that there were things that you perhaps would have changed. Um, what are your reflections now, you know, a few years removed from those films? Well, I think like Children of a Darker Dawn, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of things I would have changed. I would have made it a lot shorter. Um, I would have really edited down. Um, maybe somebody let me do a director's cut at some point, and I'll really trim those conversations down between the teens, uh, which kind of rattled on way too long. Um, I might even have more in it of uh, showing what they went through, uh, you know, in order to get them to that point. Um, so I think with... But with anything, you look back at it and you go, you've learned so much more over the years and you go, oh, I'd have done this differently or I've cast that differently or I know I would have taken more time with this particular aspect. But the thing about Children of a Darker Dawn is that it got um, it got the attention of a lot of really interesting reviewers. You know, like you guys, I mean, I, I even looked at like, you know, we get to do our almost annual chat about everything that's happening. And to me, things like that are another, you know, great um, uh what would the word be? I mean, it's kind of a great... Um, Hootenanny. Yeah, great Hootenanny. That's a, um, but no, like it's, it's one of the upsides. An um, unintended consequence. Well, yeah, absolutely, an unintended consequence. I named um, my daughter after one of the actresses from Children of a Darker Dawn. What did you call her again? Emily. Oh, yeah. You didn't really call her Emily, did you? We did actually call her Emily, but we didn't name her after <laughs> Emily well, Forster. Forevermore, I'm going to say that she was named after Emily Forster. Yeah, no, em- she's, her full name is Emily Zenith Harmony. Oh, excellent. That's... Named after Harmony Green? Uh, no, named after the Harmony of finally picking a name. Fantastic. No, the, the, the Zenith is actually named after the 2080 comic character. Ah, okay. But, but just okay. don't just don't tell your partner that. Oh no, she knows yeah. because uh, this when, this. when uh, people were coming round and giving us the congratulations, you have spawned gifts. One of those gifts was uh, Zenith Phase One graphic novel. Oh, excellent! Yeah, it was pretty good. Take the inspiration where you can get it. But actually, um, yeah, you're so. To me, Children of a Darker Dawn kind of started, you know, the ball rolling in, in terms of getting genre films out there. Now, we've had amazing reviews for it. We've had the film loved and kind of hated in equal measure, which is, you know, you know, both very worthy. I think, you know, that people are so have such vociferous hatred for something and then other people that really love it. So it really helped get everything moving in the direction of wanting to, you know, do something else and, you know, make it a bit stronger and improve on this, that, and the other. And, you know, it led on to doing The Exe of Isabel Mann, which, again, was a kind of a hard film to make because 
a lot of the casting choices were involved in the fact that it was a teen feature film project. And um, so, you know, some of the performances um, uh, or some of the characters were built around uh, those who were part of the project and trying to make it work. But they all totally rose to the challenge, you know, and gave it their absolute all, you know, to make it what it became. And funnily enough, um, it is it's released officially on DVD in the US and Canada tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. Uh, wow. Yeah, so that was kind of a long road in trying to get the best platform for it. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be available all over. But again... So, so what date is that, Jason? That's the 13th? That is the 13th of December, yeah. 13th of December 2016, people can order via Amazon, presumably? Amazon, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's been, it's been on Amazon now for about a month for pre-orders. Um, they, they got a registered there. Um, and, yeah, and again, like, you know, some great reviews have been coming in. Starburst guys loved it as well and kind of really pushing it for us. And it's actually, um, it's the cover story on Digital Filmmaker magazine at the end of December, which is great. I did a vague simulation. Yeah, they're doing an eight-page feature on, on the work that we've been doing and, and the stuff that's coming up in the future. So that's fantastic. So, um, you know, a lot of people are, are really kind of pushing it, and the distributor is really excited about it. You know, they think that there's a, a good market, and, you know, there's some been really good pre-orders and everything for it so far. So hopefully it does well. I mean, it's, it's great. I think with anything, you know, if you make a movie – you have to have a receiver for the film and the audience being the receiver. Um, so there's no, you know, if you're just going to make a film that you're just going to show family and friends, <clears throat> that's one thing. But as a film director, you really want it out there. So the people say, well, where can I see your movie? And I go, well, you can buy it or rent it on Amazon. It's, it's available anywhere. And they're like, oh, it's a real movie. And so, yeah, it's a real movie. Because a lot of people, I think, even if they know you, they think... But well, you can't really be making real movies because you're somebody we know. And it's a very, <laughs> yeah, it's a very weird kind of vibe you get from people. I think, oh, it's like a, I saw it for sale on Amazon. Like it's a real movie. So, um, so you I really you shouldn't be on Daily Motion. Yeah, Daily Motion. Jesus, that's right. Um, but you know, so so it, to me, it's great. I mean, you know, it's done its job, and that it's been picked up for proper, decent distribution in America and Canada. But what's even better is, um, they've released it as a, um, um, what do they call it? It's region free, so it means that people can buy it anywhere and watch it, um, which is which is excellent. So essentially, it's it's a worldwide distribution, but but. You know, through Amazon.com as opposed to you know .co.uk or or .ie, um, but um, you know, so that's really exciting, amazing to have that out, and uh, also uh, simultaneously, uh, the same distributors have released uh, my first feature documentary, The Twilight Hour, um, which was about British photographer Sir Simon Marsden. I think we talked about that in one of the the earlier chats, but that's now that it's official. That's a, a Discovery uh, Civilizations feature doc which now has it you know finally has its dvd release um 10 years later <laughs> or a little more actually 12 years later because that was the first thing i had done and um, so yeah they're simultaneously released uh, on december 13th tomorrow awesome. fantastic so we should definitely encourage people to pick that up if they get the chance um, and if people want to check out our review of it they don't look up children of a darker dawn they look for a review of Railway Children. Oh, that's right, of course. Yeah. I keep forgetting about that, that it was, it 
was originally called Railway Children. And then I think James we even Jones, said to you, so I'm not going to get confused. <laughs> yeah, you did. I remember you saying that at the time. Yeah, that people will get confused. What is this? Um, and they're all going to be, and, and that's what the distributor said. They said, look, people are going to be looking up the um, the Jenny Agutter Railway Children. It's going to cause issues. So they decided they came up with this. They came up with a lot of crazy names, and that one just jumped out at me. Children of a Darker Dawn. It just had a certain anamatopoeic quality to it. Yeah, yeah. It has a it has a, a Shakespearean rhythm. That was when you were working with groups of teens, and you would you would kind of workshop things, and then create right. a film later on as well. Are are you still doing that? Yeah, well, usually I have an idea of what I wanted the film to be, and then I would start workshopping the characters with with the, uh, the with the students involved. But I think I mentioned before that I would try and cast very much to type, and that way it would um, it would decrease any of the difficulties of these young actors trying to get into the character, you know, the role. So it was funny that when when I wrote the role of Ellen, for Ellen Mullen of Cassandra in Children of a Darker Dawn. Um, you know, she was saying, you really know me, Jay, don't you? You know, and this is essentially a teenage cannibal, you know. So she was wondering how I saw that in her character of Alan Mullen. But, uh, you know, and then she progresses on to being a, a, a vampire that kills nearly all of her classmates and her best friend. So um, <laughs> she's starting to look at me out of the corner of her eye, you know, what exactly do you see in me? But um, um, She's but, yeah, since so- gone into therapy. Yeah, well, now she's since gone to, to Trinity College to study some kind of sciences, and she's stepped away from acting for the moment just so she can concentrate on her studies. Um, because some of like the, some of the major modelling agencies wanted to snap her up, and yeah, she was like, uh, I don't think it's in her nature to be that way. She's a very quiet girl, you know, who would literally sit in the corner with her hood up, listening to music, and then you call her on set. Um, you know, very friendly, but it just didn't, you know, she wasn't the life and soul. You know, she'd very much like to be quiet and observe. Um, so I think her strutting the catwalk really isn't up her alley at all. Um, so, yeah, she's studying away in college and um, may get back into acting at another at another juncture. But at the moment, that's all put on hold. But it's true, yeah, working, um, I'll, I'll, I'll never stop doing that where I will... Um, even if it is a nailed-down script, I still insist that the actors really develop a strong backstory for their character and explain that when your character enters the story, in terms of what the viewer experience, uh, then you need to know what has led you up to that moment. Why are you there? Um, and that really helps them. because So then, even if it is scripted uh, dialogue, um, and it's scripted uh, in faith to the character that they've helped create then it just makes it really easy for them to perform. Um, and I see, I was thinking, so I can't remember what actors said. Oh, actually, it was Marlon Brando. And Brando would refuse to learn his lines. And uh, they'd say, well, why don't you do that? And he said, because, because I always want to be surprised. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, I mean, you could understand it in a way, but I'd say the actor, you know, who had learned their lines sitting opposite him was very surprised that he didn't know what, what his lines were meant to be. But, but it would end up, you know, Brando would give, you know, a very, a very kind of method, um, uh, realistic performance, um, whether you could hear him or not, you know, it was, uh, it was always very, and he looked amazing, of course. So that was part of the, 
part of the part of the battle for him. You know, place the camera in his direction, and you were mesmerised anyway. There's a film that he's in with Edward Norton, where there's a a, a scene where it's a just over the table conversation, and Brando is just he's he's not really giving eye contact or anything. He's just kind of dreamily looking about sometimes, and that's because the the lines are scattered about the set for him to oh, read on cue cards. Yeah, and he used to write them in, in a felt tip pen on people's foreheads and that, you know, yeah. who were acting with them, you know, <laughs> which is, Jesus, you know, very understanding co-stars that he had in films or get them to hold up a big placard with everything written in, in <laughs> big, broad, you know, um, what, are they, what do they call them? The What are those pens that they used to do autographs? Oh, the Sharpies? Uh, Sharpies, yeah. They, they're a nightmare to get off. Oh, they're incredible, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they're just... I, I end up, um, you know, because they are great for kind of idiot boards, as we like to call them, you know, respecting the talent. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I always end up covered in that stuff, and it's on your fingers for, like, 10 days. It's um, it's not easy. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm kind of, again, kind of tangentializing around the point. But, yeah, to me, building backstory and workshopping is an improv or, or integral. Uh, to what I do when I'm directing. But you previously told us that you felt that it was something of a collaborative process working with yeah. actors. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you know that you mentioned Darren Travels actually being involved and in, uh, the editing side of things. Emma Douglas being uh, a- actively involved in uh, the sound uh, and so on. So I-, I just think that's really interesting that this film in particular, and as you say, Zoe pointing out. Um, exactly this issue that is such a meta, uh, meta, meta issue that it is really, really is that collaborative process where the actors are coming to it with their own expectations of their own backstories, but also then having this additional task of being involved in the actual business of filmmaking. I think that all that matters is the end result, and however way you get there. You know, whatever works, works. I mean, one of my favorite stories was David Lean when uh, he was, I think I think it was Passage to India. And they were trying to figure out a sequence. And David Lean, he turned to the guy who just brought the tea. And the guy was looking very quizzical and like, and David Lean said, what, what do you think? Um, have you got an idea there? And your man came up with this great idea. And David Lean, let's say the tea boy's name was Jason. <laughs> And David Lean, David Lean turned to everyone and said, Jason, he's just had an amazing idea. Let's try it out. You know, and he was inspired by anyone around him. You know, he had faithful people that all, I think they were called something 12. Was it a certain group of people that he always hired for his films. And But he knew he could trust them not to be sycophantic, but to actually go, David, that doesn't work. You know, this would work better because... He wanted, even though he was known for being quite a, you know, a hardcore director and he could be very strict and, you know, he didn't suffer fools, he loved to collaborate so that the, the end result was something, was the best it could, it could be. So I think if you're working on a film and, and you have a great team around you, it can only really be the best it can be if you actually listen uh, to, to everybody's ideas uh, and, you know, because everybody wants it to be the best it can be. 
So you have to do that. So the whole idea of the director being, you know, an island unto himself and, you know, just telling people what to do has never interested me. I'm always open to ideas of those around me. And if they think that they can bring something better to it, because Darren Travers brought so much to the character that I hadn't thought of. And, and really lifted it up into 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 somewhere somewhere new and undiscovered in a way in the process of making the film that I thought I'm never not going to listen to people's ideas if I don't like them I won't use them but if I like them I'll use them and make sure that they know that they're the reason why this particular thing worked so collaboration yeah is extremely important in any creative process. Um, Speaking on on that theme, uh, Jason. Uh, Jason, you spoke before about uh, about the film Family that you've yeah. been working on, um, and that Lynn Rafferty from Love Hate had, uh, you know, been involved in that and had brought something very unique to that character and to 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 the film in itself. I wondered where you are with that process, with with that um, film, and what's happening with it at the present okay, time. Okay, well, tell you exactly what's happening with that. We we shot the whole film. And I watched it and I watched it and I watched it, edited the whole thing. And there was like 45 minutes of the film that I hated. So I ended up taking that 45 minutes, dumping it, and was left with 52 minutes of stuff that really worked. So we changed the name. It's now called The Sweetest Morsel, which is based on um, a quote from Sir Walter, Sir Walter Raleigh about uh, revenge. He invented um, the bike. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the bicycle, exactly. Um, so um, <laughs> you've thrown me off now. Very good. Um, now you're all right. Um, so Emma Dunlop's uh, in that, and she invented the tire. Well, actually, Emma Dunlop is one of the one of the things that has hit the country room floor. <laughs> um, nothing to do with her, her performance, but just there were certain characters in the film that were just distracting and that really had nothing to do with the narrative drive. So there were quite a few characters that ended up, yeah, you know, either disappearing or suddenly becoming much less important in, in the, uh, the overall scheme of it. So it's become the sweetest morsel. We're actually at the moment shooting uh, this new narrative drive section uh, to the film, which runs parallel to the story of Lynn Rafferty and Stuart Dunn. Um, and, but when I say runs parallel, they're, they're, re- they're really important in the first narrative drive. So it's all intertwined and works out really well at the end. So Darren has come on board now and he's playing this other character. And then this other um, new actor uh, who's, who's on his way up called uh, Kenny Ford, um, who's playing a character called Tank. Amazing guy. Um, and li- literally tattooed from his chin to his fingertips and deadlifts 500 pounds, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but again, it's that whole idea. You were talking about, uh, don't you recognize me, you know, and that at the very beginning and you walk into this place and you believe you have a documentary feel that all of this is really happening. You know, casting somebody like Kenny in the role of the enforcer for Darren Travers, people look at him and go, I believe that utterly. This is not just an actor, you know, who's having his tattoos painted on every morning. This is a guy who has lived a life and, you know, is bringing that experience to a feature film. So that when you look at him, you're going, Jesus, I really believe in that person. So to me, it was great that I waited all that time in order to find the right people to make it, the film ultimately work. Because I just, I don't want to put out anything that 
I can look all the way through and go, yeah, I'm actually really happy with that. Maybe there's a couple of things we could have done differently, but I'm happy to put it out there. Mm -hmm. So that's why we waited so long, because we shot that around the time. Actually, we shot that just before, don't you recognize me? So a lot of people have been on to me, what's happening? And I've explained, look, I just really wasn't happy with, you know, a little more than a third of the film. And back to the drawing board, but everything's, you know, you know, reaching a conclusion now. But we also, like, I've, I've fully edited another feature film called The Paper Child. Um, yeah, we spoke it, about that before, Jason, the yeah. issue with trying to get somebody to actually edit the film. Yeah, but that was it. See, I wanted to... Uh, actually, a lot of people are saying, look, you do too much on these things. You need to... Uh, you need to start maybe, you know, farming out to an editor and then get them to do a first pass and give your notes and decide what you want to do. And it just didn't really work out that way. It's very difficult to get people, um, you know, involved in a project that they haven't been in from the beginning and don't fully understand what you're trying to do. So I just thought I'm going to leave it aside for the moment and then I'm just going to edit it myself. So I end up editing. It's, fu it's fully locked picture now and we're doing, we're involved in the uh, the sound post. But it's a very exciting one because, um, again, we're kind of we're attracting, um, you know, more well-known actors all the time. So with the paper child now, we have uh, Brian Murray, who played Trevor Jordash in Brookside, you know, and ended up under the under the patio. Oh, wow. I've seen yes. his pictures on your Twitter yeah. and Facebook and stuff. And I was thinking, yeah. where do I know him from? And I kept thinking, go. is it? This is it that, and I could never pin it down. Now that you said Brookside, I'm like, of course it's bloody Brookside. Yeah. At one point, I was thinking, is he related to Daniel O'Donnell? Oh God, you're right. Actually, I never really thought about that. Jesus. <laughs> but I mean, that's obviously the most famous storyline in Brookside. Um, yeah. Well, really... second most famous. What Nat and Georgia? Yeah, Anna Friel played uh, Brian Murray's daughter in it, so it's all you know really intertwined in the one storyline, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so we have him, but again, he's, he's actually playing a role completely against that type. It's a very subtle kind of, yeah, he's, he's a warm character. He's trying to, he's trying to, um, look after his wife who's suffering from mental illness. And the actress, uh, Cora Fenton, amazing theater actress in Ireland, she plays the wife. And funnily enough, though, when, when we cast her, and she knew Brian Murray was playing the role. She couldn't believe it because when she was growing up, she had posters of him on her wall. <laughs> so she was like, wait, now I'm playing the young wife of Brian Murray. And this, she, she couldn't believe that. So that was, I mean, that, that was great. And they had great chemistry uh, on set and, and it worked out extremely well. And there's some really, there's, there's some really hardcore scenes in that of acting, which are, I remember actually, I, I might have mentioned this before, but our, our DOP filming a certain sequence had her eyes closed and her fingers in her ears. And I, I thought, how the fuck is she going to film this? Because <laughs> she can't hear it or see it. But because uh, it was that intense, you know, that she was deeply disturbed by what she was witnessing. Uh, Cora can go to insane levels of... Um, of kind of, you know, deep emotional angst that you'll rarely have seen uh, on screen. And it, it, it's, it'll be a difficult watch, that film. But then playing the third role in it, we have um, a great English character actor called Bill Fellows, uh, who was in Downton Abbey and Broadchurch. And practically everything you've seen, you, you know, you know this guy's face. Really great character actor, really strong guy. Um, he's, he's from um, 
Where's he from? He's, is he from Sheffield? I think he's from Sheffield. Not 100% sure, but a great accent as well. Middlesbrough. Hmm? Middlesbrough. Could be Middlesbrough. Yeah, Middlesbrough. Um, but, um, I mean, if you Google him there, Bill Fellows, you'll look at the face. Of course, I know this guy. So he plays another one of the, the, of the it's, well, three central roles, essentially. In fact, there's only three people in the entire film. And it's, uh, you know, there's no violence. It's all psychological. Um, but it's claustrophobic and, and disturbing. So I'm, kind of, I'm proud of that one. I'm looking forward to that coming out because it's, it's, it's kind of a completely different film for me. And it's very... It's filmed in a very formal way. It's very traditional, kind of cinematic, or even maybe like a BBC drama. Could you, you know? could you remind people, Jason, what the, the kind of central plot is of that? Well, the central plot of the Paper Child is a couple, older man, uh, wife, maybe twenty years younger. They had a daughter. The daughter was murdered, and they believe they know who is responsible, and they're going to make him pay. <laughs> <laughs> People are saying, well, when are you going to start making revenge movies? And I go, well, when I totally tire out the, the, the various ways you can make a revenge film, then I'll stop. Actually, funnily enough, I think, I think after these, that will be the end of the revenge films. <laughs> I was just going to say that I, I did look up Bill Fellows there, and he, he has been in loads of things that I've seen, and yeah. I didn't recognize him from him, but I scrolled right back to the very beginning and one of the earliest things he was in was the tripods. The tripods? Oh my god, I didn't even realize that myself. Yep, nineteen eighty-five. He was also yeah. in this uh, film by this Jason Figgis character. Yes, he was in Julia Jekyll and Harriet Hyde. Really? Well, yep, two episodes of that where he played Jerry Jekyll, which I assume must have been a a relative. Hetty Wainthrop investigates. Oh yeah, absolutely. he was he was in Badger, but sadly not Bodger and Badger. <laughs> Bodger and Badger. Actually, he was even a he was he was a priest on EastEnders as well for a couple of episodes. It was funny. I said, "You're finally in EastEnders," and he goes, oh, "I actually just did it for as a favor to the director." <laughs> that was on Christmas Eve, two thousand and six. Oh, you, you remember that? Or you just no, it's, it's on IMDb. Episode dated twenty fourth December two thousand and six. He played. I don't, that's yep. that's a very encyclopedic memory. So that's some skillful googling. Yeah. It is. He's been in Holby City. He's been in Casualty. Biker yeah. Grove. Biker Grove. Yeah, yep. he had quite a substantial role in Biker Grove. He's been uh, in a lot of episodes of Doctors. Yeah, yeah. TV series awesome. called Wolf Bloods. So Broadchurch as well. He was in. That was a very good series. Yeah, Broadchurch, George Gently. Um, he was in United, uh, the film United with David Tennant. He played Aberline in a short called Ripper. I wonder what that's about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I saw the footage of that. He sent me the reel and some really nice stuff, beautifully shot. Um, but, yeah, he's doing a lot of stuff. And uh, and when when I approached him about making this film and I sent him the script, he said, yeah, we just got to do this. And we've no money to make it. They were amazing. Brian Murray was the same. I see, I met him in the Westbury Hotel. He read the script. He said, we got, we got to make this movie. And I said, well, the bad news, Brian, is we've no budget. And he said, I don't care. We got to make it. Let's just do it. Let's just get this film made. And he said, and one thing I insist on, we don't change a word of dialogue. 
So, uh, I mean, that was a great uh, compliment to my wife, Bernadette, who wrote the script. So, um, awesome. yeah, yeah, he absolutely was, was blown away by, by, uh, by her dialogue. Um, she wrote a TV series, actually, that we're hoping to get off the ground, and Sean Phillips read it and uh, rang me up and said, uh, who wrote this dialogue? It's wonderful. And I said, actually, my wife. And she said, well, she's an incredible way with dialogue. So um, she's, you know, she's kind of got, got a playwright's mentality and is actually working on a couple of plays at the moment, um, you know, where it's all about, you know, you know, if it is a play, well, then you need to you need to get as much information out through the dialogue so that people will be utterly engaged. Mm. She just has that ability. So we didn't we literally didn't change a word and film and which was unusual for me as well. And that because I love to do improv. Um, it was it was it was very interesting in filming something exactly as it was written, um, but seeing actors of such of such skill uh, being able to make it look fresh every time, so that in itself is a very interesting thing that people have learned their craft so well that they can make uh, script to dialogue look spontaneous. Does that um, ever lead to interesting arguments over the dinner table? Your love of improv, her love of script. Well, actually, yeah. It's kind of like the odd couple, isn't it? Yeah, in a way, because, um, you know, that everything that she, um, everything she works on is really well thought out and, you know, draft after draft after draft until she's happy with it. And sometimes I'll say, should I not take it now and maybe read it and, you know, see what I think, and she'll either go, yeah, it's ready for you to do that, or she'll work on another couple of drafts. But she won't actually let it go uh, until she is utterly convinced that she has nailed, you know, either a piece of dialogue or a sentiment or an idea in the script mm-hmm. or the play that, is, that has gone the right direction. So that I totally admire, and the, the control um, um, and discipline it takes to be able to do that. Whereas some people could almost say maybe my technique is a little lazy. I mean, I suppose in a way it is, except for that I just love working with actors and I love seeing what ideas emerge with actors. But I'll always be very clear with an actor and go, look, it needs to get from A to B. You understand utterly who your character is. You understand who they are when they enter the story. And you know that they need to get from A to B. Now, let's see how you get there, so long as you do get there. So you could end up with a 20-minute take that you know that you'll be able to edit down. And and there's so much beautiful stuff in there. But it really is an accident. And a lot of actors say that some of the best stuff that that you find in theatre or film is is a happy accident that you stumble across while while you're doing that. But in a way, Bernard, will remove the happy accident and just make it a fact. This is going to happen, which is great because you're reading a script going all of those what I would would have found to be a happy accident are actually there in the script. And we don't even have to worry about them. They're going to be there. So it is really exciting. uh, filming stuff that she's written, knowing that this is where we're going with it, and it's and that's how it's going to appear. So yeah, so when you see the paper child, I think you get that you go, God, there this is a departure. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's very formal in the way it's a very you know much more like a, you know a kind of a, a bleak BBC drama. You know, but it's very much you know it, it plays out as something that is a properly scripted scripted film without accidents it's it's designed that way so that was great for me and, and a very you know a great new discipline for me to be able to do that i wondered 
uh, Jason, what would you say the balance was like for uh, urban traffic in terms of improvisation versus written? Well, well, again, with urban traffic, we actually spent quite a few months just working on character for that because I had this idea of, of a film that I wanted to make about sex trafficking, uh, but I wanted to do it as a microcosm, you know, a very small uh, group of people who were involved in this uh, small operation, but a microcosm of what the bigger operation would be. So, um, I, you know, I kind of thought... Okay, I have this idea. I have this treatment for this film that I want to do. I approach the actors and I said, "This is the character I'd like you to play, but I'd like you to spend a lot of time researching who they are. You know, what's gone on in their lives to bring them up to this point, and where they see themselves going. Even in terms of putting their head inside the character and going, well, this is what I wish for the future. This, or or else I don't believe I have any opportunities, you know. So whatever it was, it just had to be true to the character. So we spent quite a while, two or three months, really working on all of that before we went on the various sets uh, in order to film. Um, and actually one of the actors, um, Gemma Nicklachlan, she became uh, one of our location managers and very serendipitously knew a lot of people who had different properties and that who let us use them, um, you know, at, at a particular time. So we did, we didn't get to film it in sequence. We got to film it, uh, in terms of the availability of locations, which can be problematic if somebody, if actors have, uh, decided on who their character is and where the character is going at a given moment. And then suddenly you're jumping back, you know, three pages in the treatment and then you're launching forward seven or eight pages from another point but you know, I mean, they they kind of they grasped it and uh, and uh, went with it as as best as we all could. <laughs> Marched ahead. Um, so yeah. yeah, she was the um, the best friend of. Oh, I can't remember her name. I know that she was on Project Runway. Oh, Koji Hanbein. Yep. Yeah, Koji Hanbein. Yeah, she was uh, she was on Project Runway. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I did my research this time. Very good. Yes, very good. We're trying um, to impress you this time. Oh, <laughs> you, always, you both always impress me. Oh, well, that's good. That's good. That's why I keep coming back for more. Going back a wee couple of steps, Jason, obviously we spoke before about the um, issues of homelessness, issues of um, people being disenfranchised and people being forgotten. This film yep. starts off with... Um, an interview that you've conducted. Um, I don't know if it's you, but I think it's you. It's a kind of disembo- yeah. disembodied voice of yep. someone, a, a director, uh, interviewing a homeless person, talking about their experience of being on the streets and um, of of trying to find of you know having issues with drugs. What do you think the government could be doing to help? Um, yep. And over that gave, that gives a kind of natural tie between the two films. Um, so I, I wondered what inspired you to take on the, the subject of uh, of of sex trafficking, um, and you know what what inspired you? Is there an element of realism, or has there been a story that you've read in a newspaper that's that's prompted that? Well, I think it's a um, it's something I've always found very disturbing. And the thought of people being uh, forced into a lifestyle that um, they would have never have chosen or never want to get involved with. And I remember 
about 10 years ago, um, walking through the city and seeing these two girls sitting in the back of a car with two really heavy guys sitting in the front uh, and, and somebody else at a bank machine. And the girls were staring ahead and looking really serious and if a little disturbed. And I immediately kept thinking, Christ, have they been trafficked for sex? And uh, it just, it kind of lingered with me. And I couldn't get the image out of my head thinking I've just kind of walked past that car. And and this stuff, you know, goes on and, and it's under the surface of, uh, you know, a veneer of society where people are going about doing their Christmas shopping, etc. And they might walk past somebody who's been trafficked for one reason or another, either for uh, purposes of sex or cheap labor or, you know, whatever. So it's always really disturbed me. And I kind of thought, well, you know, if an operation of sex trafficking becomes really big, it still has to start somewhere. So it might start small with somebody going, well, we have a brothel. And, oh, but now it turns out that somebody is willing to pay big money to have some girl kidnapped and sent off somewhere else. And so I wanted to keep it at that kind of that micro microcosm level where you thought that, well, it could start off really small and then it could expand and become bigger. But I also, I also, tr- I wanted to get to the humanity of it if possible. And even with urban traffic, you know, you have the main guy, Dan, who really doesn't look as though he wants to be in that world because he's already in a relationship with Annie and, and he's constantly telling her, you know, we can get away. You know, I was thinking, what if, you know, what if I put you in this place and you ran it for me and I'd be able to come over and visit, you know, wants to literally get her offshore somewhere so that he'll have an escape. Um, so I kind of wanted to uh, look at the fact that there's a, there's a human strain running through everybody where everyone feels emotion. Um, um, I mean, obviously, there, there are people in the world who are, they say, are missing a chromosome and they, they literally don't have any empathy whatsoever. But I think most people regardless of what area uh, of business or skullduggery they're, they're involved in that uh, there is a there is a strain of 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 empathy there and they can understand other people's grief or pain or discomfort so i wanted to kind of when i thought about this film i thought it'd be interesting to tackle something like this but to try and do it on that very small level where we actually get to know the bad guys and the good guys um, and of course, it's funny you mentioned that opening. Yeah, that in Dublin you see a lot of homeless people, and you you can't help but wonder, well, what do they do to make ends meet? You know, are they, you know, picking up punters and doing what needs to be done in order to pay for their next meal? And you can't, especially when you see young girls who look vulnerable, you know, sitting on a street corner with a blanket around them, and you go, Christ, like, how do they survive? It's it's a hideous thought. Um, so the opening piece on the radio, I, I actually did both of the voices. I did the interviewee as well as the interviewer. Uh, ah. Yeah, so it was it was fun because I recorded them on separate tracks, but then I brought them into Soundtrack Pro, and you can very easily overlap. So it sounds as though you know the uh, the interviewer is just slightly overlapping what the, what what the interviewee is about to say, and then he stops, and then they continue on. So you know, to give it that feeling of yeah, this is uh, this is a genuine conversation. Nobody got that. They all said, "Oh yeah, I recognize you. I heard you as the interviewer." And I said, "I was also the interviewee." And they're like, "What?" <laughs> Didn't get that. But, so uh, you did the exact opposite of what I do when I edit this show. 
the exact opposite. Yeah, I I actually will try and make a little space All in right. between, like whenever there's an overlap, I will intentionally seek out a tiny bit of silence from the other track. Right, okay. Which is, it's really geeky, but you'll understand the fact that you can't just cut to just dead silence because oh, even when you combine the tracks, there's just this one sudden tiny bit where people go, what was that little jump in sound? Oh, it's totally it. I mean, I often say to people that when, if you're watching a film, one thing that really annoys me, if suddenly the sound goes, if there's a tiny little uh, 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 glitch, it almost destroys the experience for me because I'm always saying to people, even if it's a scene with total silence, there's no such thing as total silence. Rooms where, where people are utterly still and silent has a room atmos. There's, yeah, you've got your ambience of whatever you're listening. Exactly. There's always something. There's no such thing as complete and utter silence. It doesn't exist. There's, I do know one film that uses complete silence in one scene. What film is that? It's Alien 3. Oh, really? Yeah, the sound designers cut to just complete silence as... At the end, when they're trying to set everything up to catch the alien, yeah, and there's the guys that are, I think they're kind of mopping oil or petrol or something all over the place, mm. and somebody drops a match. Oh, yeah. The bit when the match falls, that is complete zero dB on the soundtrack. There was still a fella eating popcorn next to me. There, there, there would have been, aye, but... If you watch the documentary about the making of it, the the look on the guys' faces when they're telling you about it, they're just like, we snuck extreme silence into this film. They look so pleased with themselves. But then as, but then you also go, well, but I mean, it's utterly unrealistic. It <laughs> is, but then at the same time, it kind of works because it creates, there's like a, it makes the, the explosion seem like it's bursting out of a vacuum rather than just... A fire starting in a hall. I mean, they say there's complete silence in outer space, which is really interesting to me. You know, there's, there's no. There sense. wouldn't be because there's the blood yeah. pumping in your ears. Amazing, though, the thought of that utter silence. You know, if you're floating throughout outer space. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Let's do a total moment of utter silence here, right? right one, two, three. See, I just edited that, and we didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> But those guys that did the sound editing on Alien 3 will be so happy with us. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so Urban Traffic, it's um, obviously, I don't know, Jason, could, could you give us a, just a quick synopsis of the plot? Again, I keep asking you to do uh, to do this because I'm rubbish at it. And I, I, I realise... Also, you're, all you're, the other synopses that we read are always pretty bad, aren't The they? thing is, I know for a fact you have like seven elevator pitches stuck in your brain um, <laughs> for each one. Probably. Well, if I don't understand what it's about, then there's a major problem. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, basically, um, it is about a young man who has been hired by a uh, a, a group of ne'er-do-well sex traffickers, <laughs> not that there could be anything other than that, um, who have hired him because he has a, a handsome face to go out, pretend to be living rough, and to gain the confidence of young women that they feel uh, would work well in their little institution 
against their will, needless to say. Um, he does that, and the film opens with him successfully doing that with, with a particular girl who is then um, kidnapped and put into a life of, uh, of um, sexual servitude, or whatever way you want to put it. Um, but then he ends up meeting a girl who um, kind of changes his way of thinking about things because he genuinely has feelings for this girl. And because he has these feelings for her, um, he decides to extricate himself from the business. And so things kind of go badly wrong at that point where he decides he no longer wants to be part of that world. And all hell breaks loose, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, a, that's another, it's quite a different type of film, I would say, from... Um, I don't know a different uh, kind of film from Don't You Recognize Me. Um, it feels more traditional um, in a yeah. lot of respects. Um, and again, this a kind of similar scenario to the previous film. Nobody is innocent. I would suggest. Yeah. Um, I think there's there's no clear cut goodies and baddies per se I think there's characters that would perhaps sympathise with more than others um, but I think a lot of people are admittedly a lot of people are being very desperate and, and doing what they need to do to survive but um, there's a lot of what's the word disreputable behaviour or uh, yeah sympathy can only go so far uh-huh. Well, it's true. I mean, um, I wanted to... It's annoying that the whole expression Shades of Grey has been ruined now by that, that film and book. <laughs> and you can't say that anymore now without people thinking of Jamie Dorn. Um, but uh, there is... Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of him now, and that's your fault, because you mentioned him. I'm sorry about that. Well, think of <sighs> Dakota Johnson instead. Oh, that's um, worse. <laughs> don't let Don Johnson hear you say that. But um, no, I'm thinking of him. What are you doing to me, Jason? I'm sorry, I'm thinking of and who else? And Melanie Griffith. Um, yeah. So yeah, I wanted there to be the shades of grey, and there were no really good guys, and and um, and varying shades of, of bad guys in it. Because let's face it, the character that Damien Guyden plays um, of Adam. I mean. You know, it's a very sleazy job he has, and he never really gets the chance to redeem himself, as you have seen. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, I didn't want kind of easy answers, like let's turn him into this heroic character. He's a deeply flawed character because of, you know, his experiences in his childhood and, and you know, instead of maybe taking responsibility for that and being a you know, a well-rounded member and productive member of society. He's decided to uh, submit to the shit that he went through as a kid and, and make it worse by making bad decisions himself. So um, so he is a deeply flawed character. And I think the character that Claire Blenner Hassett plays of his sister, Annie, uh, who is somebody who's taking more of a responsibility um, in looking after their father, who was the abusive element in the household, um, that uh, she's been deeply affected by it. And as we see later, um, obviously a deeply disturbed individual. But you, you do see her initially as being uh, somebody who um, is, is very responsible and is doing, doing the right thing by the family. Um, mm. and, and whereas Adam will just come and go and give her some money and that makes, makes him feel better that he's providing uh, for this 
limited lifestyle that the father has. So they're, I mean, they're all, I mean, there's nobody in it. I think other than really um, the character that Claire Murray plays, um, she seems to be the only real innocent. But even it's funny, some people have mentioned that, yeah, but if you actually think about it, she's the one who makes the first approach as well to Adam. Even though he's following her, she's the one who walks over and sits with him and kind of makes the first move. So, you know, this girl knows how to look after herself. You know, if she's interested in something, she'll go for it. I think, um, the, I think the thing that, that Adam makes a comment along the lines of um, maybe about a third of the way through again, makes a comment that a lot of women don't respect themselves, um, which seemed to me like a very kind of misogynistic position that kind of tied in with almost like he was testing Claire Murray's character at that point when when they were in the park. I was possibly, I, I suppose I was watching it from the perspective of the viewer. Um, I didn't know what his intention was, whether he, this was how he reacted with different women, whether he, you know, would seek out women that were maybe... Um, you know, use different tactics to to attract different types of women. So for this type of woman, they would go and read poetry in the park. Um, so I was reading that that aspect as being an extension of um, his views on women and, and his views on uh, you know uh, that the women should have respect for themselves mm-hmm. um, and and being a part of that uh, kind of misogynistic worldview. Oh, that- as yeah. as a fellow viewer. Did you also feel that maybe if you'd seen him interact with a few other women, like as we, as Jason said, like there's some films where he goes, oh, I wish I'd made that a wee bit shorter. Yeah. I think maybe if there'd been like an extra 10 minutes where it just, if it showed you a bit more of his interactions. With other women as well. Just to clarify his motives or, or his modus operandi a bit. Yeah, I think I think when we were making the film, I, I wanted to have a guy who was re- kind of really on the edge of society, and they was just willing to do the job that was given to him in order to you know get paid for it. And he didn't really have a lot of respect for women, and he was disappointed that his sister was willing to look after the father who was deeply abusive to them and had you know every right and reason not to be there at all and and get on with their life. And I think he found. He found the weakness of these women in in his life deeply disturbing to him, um, and so that when he when he picked up the first girl at the beginning and just found her so compliant, you know, to him, you know, she's just another one of those women that I can I can manipulate and in whatever way I see fit. But then when he comes across uh, Claire's character, um, it's like wow, this is this is a strong young woman who's out there in the world doing her thing and you know, can can operate on the same level as me, a man, you know. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you know, in a way has made the first move and, and, and made him almost the object of desire uh, in that relationship, you know, where he just had to respond to that and respond to her motive and her, um, and her approach. Um, and, and, you know, it's kind of sad that it took that for him to go, oh, my God, you know, why Why am I doing this? Um, I don't want to do this anymore uh, because of the first woman who, who has had that response to him or he's had that response to her. Um, so, yeah, I mean, possibly, yeah, we could have shown his interaction with other women. Um, 
but I I also I wanted to keep him as as a kind of an on the edge character as well that we kind of go yeah we, we spot guys like him around town all the time and we don't know what their motive is so we only get so far inside the mind of this person and also the fact that even though it looks as though he's going to be the hero and then he does something utterly stupid and doesn't become the hero and got to spin it in another direction and again bring a more powerful female character to the fore that that wasn't expected by most people anyway i think most of the female characters are kind of stronger than him yeah i think he he believes that he's strong yeah, but he's not really. He's just he's just following what his idea of that kind of strength would be. Whereas the the women genuinely portray it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the fact that be you know people are saying, "God, you have you have a woman, you know, played by Koji Helmvine being the right hand man of her brother running this operation um, and doing a lot of the dirty work and being you know." you know, a, a traitor to womankind, essentially, in what she's doing, and uh, and very cold-hearted with it. Um, but at the same time, you see that she, you know, she does have a soft spot for, for Adam, um, which is also another flaw, I think, in her character, you know, that, <laughs> that she would be so, not heartbroken, but disheveled over the fact that he, um, you know, doesn't want to be involved in this horrible game anymore. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's very little family resemblance. Yeah, true. <laughs> but also, as I mentioned about Don't You Recognise Me, where halfway through there was the the music from the start mm-hmm. came back in. Mm-hmm. At basically, yet again, almost the 50% mark of this film, it does a, a cut to black. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> That is true. Yeah, like, like through not not through the the kind of story running time, but through the entire running time. So I suppose that's kind of a bit of a cheat because credits. Well, you know they they throw that off, don't they? Yeah, credits do throw it off, and you can. I mean, a lot of the time, I'll find a particular piece of music um, that I like for you know the outro in the film, and I will time the credits to that. So yeah. yeah. I mean, so that'll be, you know, very specific and it's ending at, at just the right moment. Um, so, yeah, that is uh, that is true. It's not not right on the money, but um, in, in and around that. I really like the outro for, um, for uh, Urban Traffic, actually. I like the, it was kind of not really what I was expecting in terms of a final song for this, but I just think it, it kind of worked. The song? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's that's true. A, actually, that's kind of choppy guitar-based one, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it um, it it was unusual. I thought that I thought it'd be a, a different way of ending the film, um, and also people were kind of going, you know, will will he wake up? Will he wake up? <laughs> and what's going to happen after that? After you know, like he's in he's he's in uh, he's in deep shit. He he is uh, a man with problems. <laughs> he is very much so. There we go. Okay. Um, so, Jason, what are your, uh, maybe moving on, um, I was just going to wonder, what are your plans for the Christmas and New Year holiday coming up? Have you got anything planned? Or um, what does the next year hold in store for 1J, I guess? 
Well, there's a lot. I mean, Christmas, we're, we're going to just take it easy. My parents are coming over to join us. So that'll be nice uh, for Christmas. And then go down to Kilkenny maybe for New Year's. So, um, um, but, you know, that's open to change as well. Nice. Um, but uh, just kind of try and relax over Christmas because there's a lot happening in the New Year. Um, there's a lot of, you know, post-production that needs to be finished uh, Obviously, the fin- finishing the shoots on the sweetest morsel, getting the sound completed for the paper child. But I'm also involved in um, the development of several documentaries. I'm doing a documentary on Sir Simon Marsden, uh, the photographer. Um, who the, I did a documentary with him. I was staying um, back in 2004, uh, which mm-hmm. is just being released on DVD, which was with, with Discovery Channel. So sadly, he passed away a couple of years ago. Lo- lovely guy. So myself and uh, his wife, Cassie, are putting together a documentary about his life, which is really fascinating. Uh, born in the 40s and, you know, got involved in fashion photography and swinging, you know, London in the in the late 60s. And um, just, just a really kind of eventful life and a really talented photographer. So that's in the works. But also... Um, I am um, uh, working on a documentary on the life of Bram Stoker. Um, so that's nice. that's really interesting. And it's really the man behind uh, the guy who wrote Dracula. So it's, called, it's actually called A Stoker's Search for Dracula because the guy presenting it and working on it with me is his great nephew, Dacre Stoker. Um, and he runs the, uh, the Bram Stoker... Uh, um, uh, estate in uh, in Carolina, in I think in North Carolina, in the states. So it's got the official stamp of, of approval, which is nice. Uh, in order to move ahead with that, so we're at the stage where we are working on uh, promos for that and getting it out there. So there's um, there's there's quite a lot to do in the new year uh, in getting all this stuff finished and and out into the world. And the internet says that you have two other things released this year well uh, that's grain exploitation oh of course a that's segment and the 12 sleighs of christmas that's right a segment as well i got involved with body bag films and um they invited me to direct a sequence for grain exploitation the movie which has been released by trauma the uh, the great uh, underground uh, film distributor so it's amazing to to in with them, and I think they're releasing a, a Blu-ray of it next year. Yeah, our, our first uh, celebrity interview, Jason, uh, or one of, if not our first, certainly one of our first, uh, was Lloyd Kaufman. Ah, um, that's that's really awesome, man. That's, so um, that was about three o'clock in the morning. It certainly wasn't? was. It certainly was. Yeah, it what was the, meant to be at one o'clock in the morning. At the time, and then it was yeah. half one. Then it was two. <laughs> that was. And, and Ross is a, he's a very, he's a happy chap at three in the morning. <laughs> oh, very good. T- ten, o'clock, 10 o'clock is past my bedtime, I'll be honest. Yeah. yeah. This is the point at which I get, uh, I get moody. Catchy. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's if coming you... up to, uh, it's two minutes to ten. Oh, it's two minutes to ten. <laughs> Quick. Have your nighttime gin. I know, yeah. But but it's funny you should say anyway about trauma. So they're releasing also 12 Slays of Christmas this Christmas. But then they've asked me, they've invited me to do a segment for Grindsploitation 3 and also another one called um, Oh Bloody Night for next Christmas. 
So I keep coming up with these really nasty little horror shorts. Uh, did one called The Wandering for Grind Exploitation. Did one called The Uncommon Mr. Good um, for um, for Twelve Slaves of Christmas. And then the one I'm doing for Grind Exploitation Three is uh, one called Fly on the Wall. But it's also intercut. It's supposed to look as though it's been, um, re- you know, recorded back onto videotape. So it actually. In the middle of the short, it kind of crackles out to this parody um, um, uh, trailer of a film about Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> so that's quite, but with the, you know that you know that American, you know Vlad the Impaler. You know that really- there was there was a very parodic film about Vlad the Impaler released a couple of years ago. I think it was called Dracula Unbound. Oh, or Untold, wasn't it? With- oh, was it Untold? Yeah, Dracula. Uh, it was. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> it really was. We we saw it in the cinema. Right. And I think we spent the whole time just wondering what was going on. Well, I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. You don't want to. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. Right. And that's meant to be tied into them relaunching the Universal Monsters series. I see. That, with that and I, Frankenstein. Right. And if that's your jumping off points, then you should probably be jumping off a really big cliff. Yeah. And yeah. with no plans of coming back up. Because yeah. those two films were ridiculous. I don't understand why, um, you know, especially a big studio which has the resources and the money, why they don't go back to the original source material, i.e. the novel, and actually adapt the novels uh, realistically and faithfully. Because, well, I mean, the stories are there, they're incredible, you know? Where's where's the money in reproducing something people have read? <laughs> well, there is that, I suppose. There's, the- there's loads of money in reproducing things people have read. Because then you've already got a fan base, but the studios don't care about that. Yeah. But if they thought that way, you know, they'd end up with some major successes, you know, and, and film them as straight drama, you know, actually look at the text and go, there's a great story here. Let's let's be faithful to it and uh, and put it out there. I mean, I'm the same as you guys. I, I believe that that would really work, and I don't know why they don't do it. For the record, Jason, I'm not of that view. I kind of like, uh, like people who... He, he likes to be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I think somebody wrote, somebody wrote a story that has withstood the test of time. Yeah, Gil's very much a literalist from that side. I'm only a literalist when it is a really good story already. I'm with you. Are you guys going to see Rogue One? By the way, um, I yeah, I think I will. Um, I mean, I've always of course been we will. Star Wars, yeah, so. Yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to it. And I like Felicity Jones as well, and the fact that they have Darth Vader in it and, and all the stormtroopers, etc. So, you know. We've been fooled before because the posters for episode three had Darth Vader on them. Yeah. And he's in it just shouting no. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, that's the We've been fooled before. Well. But I don't think we're going to get fooled again. I, I don't think the, the public will allow it, will they? Well, I, I think that they're now outsourcing to interesting enough directors. I think it would be kind of interesting to see what you did with the big-budget story. I'd love to do something with a big-budget story. Well, if you, I mean, look at the... I mean, obviously, James Gunn being 
Yeah, a really good, a really good example. Yeah. Peter, Peter yeah. Jackson, people who have started yeah. out um, in the Indies and have moved on to do amazing stuff. Yeah, true, true. Yes, it's, uh, but they both started with gore. That's what you need to yeah. do, Jason. Up, up the gore count. The gore count, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dead, for example, insane gore. Yeah. No more, no more subtlety. Should be your uh... yeah. None of the, none of this subtlety. <laughs> Just show his brains. <laughs> but um. Yeah, I mean, I'd love the opportunity to be handed a huge budget and do something. But uh, hopefully that day will come sooner other than later. What franchise would you have your eye on? Well, to be quite honest, if, if somebody said, OK, you've got, a huge, you've got one big opportunity uh, to tackle a franchise and do something really hardcore with it, it would have to be James Bond. I would love to direct a James Bond film. Awesome. Would the hardcore thing that you did with it be make it more like the James Bond films from the 80s that people enjoyed? Well, no, I think, I, I just think all of the elements of the James Bond films, yes, that people really enjoy about them, you know, that all of those little iconic moments I really want to bring to the fore and make it less... Um, Borny. Yeah, I mean... More, yeah, Borny, exactly. That's true, actually. Just really, I mean, I do love Daniel Craig, I have to say, but my favourite Bond is Sean Connery. Um, um, you know, I, you're just saying that because we're Scottish. No, no, no. <laughs> I'd actually forgotten you were Scottish for a second. <laughs> but no, no, no. Sorry, my favourite Bond is actually Lazenby. George Lazenby I love as well. I mean, just because of the film, I think it is the yeah. best film. It's so good. It's so, and it's really long. It's two hours eighteen minutes. You know, they never yeah. they get away with that. But because it's funny enough, John Glenn was talking to me about that film, um, and he was saying because he was the second unit director on it, and he shot uh, all of, nearly all of the um, the uh, the action sequences in the snow, um, mm-hmm. and because of that. Uh, working on that film is the reason why he was eventually picked to uh, to direct uh, some of the Roger Moore bonds um, and some of the really incredible sequences, like you know the the you know the one where where uh, Roger Moore flies the plane through the hangar and everything, you know, which is incredible. Yeah, and the wings get clipped. Oh, it's amazing. But he was saying how they did that with a, with a, with a little model, you know, that they that they had on a wire thing, and it was all so well edited that you just not for a second did you think that that was a little scaled model. Incredible, you know. Was that octopusy? I think it was, yeah. Well, it was well, the it was like the micro light that came out of the back of a horse carrier. Right. Yeah, yeah, that is that. And in fact, John, I had that toy. Did you? They sold that as a toy, like a car with a horse trailer with a micro light that came that's, out of it. Yeah, that sounds really familiar, actually. But um, I just, yeah. I mean, what a great opportunity it would be to have to have all of the iconic uh, things that are James Bond. And, you know, to make, you know, to be able to be given all those toys and be able to make your version of that, you know, and try and remain as faithful as you can to the franchise. I fucking hate the word franchise. Because <laughs> you know what I mean? It just sounds so businesslike. It's like, it's a business, you know, it's like, yeah. to, to me, film, yeah, great to make a load of money on a movie. It'd be fantastic. But uh, there has to be passion. And, and artistry going into making something. Otherwise, you can't give it your all. So to me, the businessman call it a franchise, 
Um, but the filmmakers, you know, consider it their baby in a way if they get the opportunity to do something, you know, that big. And let's face it, you make a Bond movie and it's, you know, the ultimate platform. I mean, it's still the most successful franchise in film history um, and continues to, you know, even even Spectre, you know, still did incredibly good business, even though it didn't... Uh, it didn't quite reach what didn't didn't really please. Well, yeah, it didn't really please exactly, and and it was it was cold, and it kind of looked like Daniel Craig didn't give a shit anymore, and and uh, even as much as I love um, Christoph Waltz, I mean, he played he played Blofeld as a real kind of. But we knew he was Blofeld. Yeah, and then as soon as as soon as we figured that out in the trailers. The entire film is building towards this big reveal of, and then you're like, "How do the two of you not remember growing up together?" And then you're like, "Wait a minute, this is yeah. the this is the plot of Goldmember." <laughs> Very good. You know the best Bond film that's been released in the past twenty years. Which which one? Kingsman: The Secret Service. Oh, that was really enjoyable. Yeah. That was really enjoyable, despite yeah. its many flaws. Yeah, very enjoyable. It was the closest we've had to a Bond film for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And Matthew Vaughn, I think, made that as his... If you're looking for somebody to actually make some more Bond films, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's true. That, absolutely. And I think they're doing Kingsman too, aren't they? I think they have that. Work. They are, and Colin Firth is going to be in it. No matter what you think happened to him in the film, well, that'd be awesome because it did annoy the crap out of me. Spoiler alert that he got killed. <laughs> <laughs> that really did annoy me. But um, yeah, it'd be great to be turned back up in the other one and not as a fucking flashback or a hologram. Or a flashback hologram. Yeah, even worse. That, that could be possible. It could be. I don't know if Roscoe's actually seen Kingsman and Secret Service. No, I've no. It is really well worth watching. You should definitely give it a but you should yeah. you should watch it with the mindset of the fifteen year old you that actually the fifteen year old you would have been enjoying terrible Bond films. Because <laughs> you're that wee bit younger than me. I was enjoying zero Bond films. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah, I've never really been a Bond fan, to be honest. Is that why you didn't comment when I said I loved there's like radio silence when I said I loved <laughs> Well, but what if you cast Russell Brand as James Bond? That would be the worst thing ever. <laughs> God, be like, be like if you cast him as Arthur. Yeah, I, I was thinking if they were picking a new James Bond, they might uh, kind of look outside the norm and not, and not just you know not just look at all the you know the actors who are doing well today and in the spotlight, but they might you know throw their net out a little further. And I was actually thinking that I don't know whether he can act or not, but the the British model uh, from Essex, um, um, I think he's from Billericay actually, um, um, called David Gandhi would actually make an excellent James Bond um, because he even looks like uh, the Bond that Ian Fleming intended when you look at the um, like the first editions of uh, of Ian Fleming's novels. He really looks like that traditional Bond. Because not only is he very good looking, but he actually looks like a killer. He actually does. He's he's a very Bond esque look, but he has no no yeah. acting under his belt, does he? I don't think so. Um so but then again, I mean, um 
maybe he's just a natural. I've met a lot of people who've never acted before. And when they're not actually trying to perform um, and they actually just live the role or become the role, then they end up giving a really good performance. So, uh, I mean, look, George Lazer to me, he was a model. There was another James Bond that started off as a model. Uh, Sean Connery? Of course he did, yeah. And he was also... He was also a Mr. Universe contestant as a bodybuilder. Yep. Arnold Schwarzenegger is Bond. Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so, do you? Did you know that Arnold Schwarzenegger lived in London for years before his career took off? Yes, I did, actually. I think he was brought over by um, some kind of bodybuilding mogul uh, husband and wife. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Yeah. That amazing fact, I would just like to say thank you very much, Jason, for uh, coming on the show. Once again, really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure, as always. It's really awesome to have you, man. Um, really hoping that uh, you continue to do well with the work that you've done. I think, for the record, these are your two best films so far. I think you've really got things down um, in terms of what, in terms of what you're doing. Um, and we really enjoyed both uh, Children of Darker Dawn and as a bellman and it just feels like you've kind of progressed again um, and moved move forward and it's really great to see you getting those chances Thank you very much I mean, And I'm if hoping... you do make a werewolf film give oh, us I'll a shout <laughs> I will give you a shout no problem at all Awesome man might well, shoot in Edinburgh. <laughs> What was that sorry? I might shoot it in Edinburgh That would be wonderful uh, that, that would be terrible That is Edinburgh Where would... <laughs> Shoot it in Glasgow, that's easy. We'll, we'll go from town, it'll be a commute werewolf film, and we'll go from Edinburgh <laughs> to Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, well, there's the Megabus. Excellent. Yeah, there you Mega go. Werewolf, Excellent. that's the name of the film. I love it. I've been it trying doesn't to matter that. what happens in the rest of the film, as long as you have a werewolf that uses the Megabus to get from place to place, you can <laughs> then use that name... Mega Werewolf that I am now gifting to you. Thank you so much. That's brilliant. It's the, a great the, To be fair, see if you you phone up your distributor tomorrow and say, uh, yeah, I'm doing a new film next year. It's called Mega Werewolf. They'll be like, we're buying it. Exactly, in the way that Hammer did. But we'll sell an Asda. And that's all that matters. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if, if there's a moral of the story to be taken away, Jason, I think that's really it. Yeah, I think it's the, the Asylum has taken over the movie industry. It has. Jason, you <laughs> have once again been uh, very courteous of your time um, and up with our rambling. We really appreciate it and we hope uh, that you can use some of this at some point in the future. Hint, hint. Um, so, <laughs> just want to say thank you very much, man, and hopefully speak to you again really soon. Thank you very much, guys, and it's always a pleasure. One of the highlights of the year. <laughs> Awesome, man. And it's always awesome for us as well. Wow, that's very nice, Gil. And with that lovely sentiment, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's time for us to bid you once again a, a fond farewell. Um, uh, that was amazing. So awesome to speak to Jason for the third, uh, third time. Yep. Very, very cool. Um, and really great couple of movies, Urban Traffic. Um, particularly Don't You Recognise Me I felt was was very very good um, but both films are excellent and would definitely encourage people to to see both 
when they come out. I've, um, I've actually watched Don't You Recognise Me twice now. Ah, great. Okay. It's, it's just, even though I knew this is going to get uh-huh. intense, so it's, I mean, it's half an hour building up, and then you go, oh, this is a bit awkward. <laughs> then it yeah. just, it never lets up. It certainly it's, doesn't. It's great fun. Well, Very... we we say great fun, but that's you know. That's us. I'm glad you're backing me up on this one. This is uh, <laughs> this is good. I'm glad that you're doing that, my friend. That's that's what we're there for. Yeah. Um. So, guys, uh, we really appreciate you listening. Um. We realise a lot of people will have come on board, uh, to get a listen. Um you know, because Jay is on the show. So thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we are on uh, iTunes. Uh, you can find us by searching for Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. We typically do reviews of horror movies, but we're not particularly limited to that. We go <laughs> sci-fi. We, well, we're not strict, we're, are we? We're very, very rarely limited by the title of the show. Um, and with the interviews we so many great people, and if you'd like to subscribe, run iTunes, Gillen Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast, also on the RSS feed, you can find us if you do a search through any of those channels, Stitcher, Smart Radio, for streaming, um, and also, Facebook. the easiest way, to, easiest way to find us is through Facebook or Twitter. Um, Bodacioushorror.co.uk Absolutely. Um but guys, thank you so much indeed for listening. Gil, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the boys and girls at home? I'd like to say if anyone hasn't enjoyed this episode, they should address all complaints directly to at Bodacious Horror on Twitter. Absolutely. And if you've really enjoyed the show, I would suggest that you send some naked selfies to at Gil Rokotansky on Twitter. <laughs> I know that you're going to enjoy the show, so I'm really not looking forward to that message from you. Well, it'll be a DM. It'll be a DM because we follow each other. Um, so on that, on that uh, terrifying note, I would like to say goodbye. And once again, please don't have nightmares. Goodbye. Goodbye.